Today's scripture reading is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8 and verse 12. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. And I have to start really, guys, there is something, this is something crazy, something I find so incredible that I just want to share with you. Like, did you guys know that there are people, like there are people even in this church who willingly run 26.2 miles? Not because someone is paying them a million dollars or they're being chased by a bear, but for fun. For fun. And some of them, some of you, you do it more than once a year. For fun. And apparently there are these things called ultra marathons where people can run anywhere from 31 to 200 miles. And I just struggle to understand the headspace of someone who wants to run 200 miles. I mean, just some people are a level of crazy I just will not understand. And, and, you know, the closest I've ever come to doing something like that is I've done a couple Tough Mudders. Uh, Some guys at First City, we've gone and done a couple Tough Mudders. That's like eight miles, but there's obstacles. That's fun for me. Obstacles are fun for me. Just running straight, not so much. But what makes marathons and ultramarathons so challenging is the incredible amount of endurance that is required I mean, pushing your body past the average and normal levels of endurance is something far, far more. Because if, if I decided I wanted to see what all the fun is about, and I said, tomorrow I am going to run 26.2 miles, what's going to happen to me if I just, out of, just kind of cold, decide to go run 26.2 miles? What's going to happen? It's going to be painful, probably some puking. I may have to call for a wheelchair to help me finish. Because that level of stress and strain on a body is not something you can just pick up and do all of a sudden. It requires training. It requires building up strength over time. You have to push and stress and test your body's limits, getting stronger and stronger along the way. So our worship leader, Eric Adele, he's one of these crazy endurance athletes. He's run marathons, but his thing is the Ironman races. You guys know about Ironman? This is where you swim 2.4 miles, bike 112 miles, then you run a marathon. Like, like I just want to take a nap just saying that. And, and so Eric has, has done a number of these, and, and when he has been training, uh, sometimes when he and I are out to lunch, I'll just ask him, how's that training going? Like, what, what does that involve? Like, how much training does it require? And, and he told me, it depending on when the training, you know, kind of where he is in the training, but, but in average, only two and a half hours a day, six days a week. 
Okay. <laughs> but, but putting your body through a strain of a 2.4-mile swim, 112 miles on a bike, and then a marathon requires that level of training. It requires that level of building up the strength and endurance of your body if he is going to finish and survive. Well, the title of my message this morning is Endurance Training. Uh, James is going to teach us that for those who belong to Christ— There is a kind of endurance training that we are going through. And listen, if you have ever heard that following Jesus makes your life easier, that that you can expect health and wealth and prosperity because you follow Jesus, that, that following Jesus means you're going to get that great American dream, James wants to drop a two ton nuclear bomb on that and explode any idea that Jesus makes your life easier. Now, there is incredible blessing following Jesus. There is forgiveness and freedom and life and joy and peace. Yes. However, all of those things don't make life easier. They can make life better in many ways, but they don't make life easier. We live in a fallen and a broken world. And so our following Jesus in this world means there is going to be pain and trial and suffering and hardship And for those of us who are prone to believing in an American dream, Jesus, James wants to shatter your expectations. He wants to make it clear your faith is going to be pushed and stressed and tested. Now, for others of you, you may have no illusions that following Jesus makes your life easier. You know that's not the case. You are intimately familiar with pain and trial. Suffering feels very normal to you. You've sort of accepted this is the way it is going to be. But I wonder for you, do you see purpose in your trials and in your suffering? Do you know God has purpose for you in your trial and suffering? Do you believe that God is good and he is up to something good in your trial? That the endurance training that you are going through is not meant to wreck and to ruin you, but actually to perfect you. And so for those of you who feel crushed and defeated by your trials, James wants to give you hope. James wants to lift your head to see what God is up to, to strengthen you, to reorient you, to give you hope in the midst of your trial and point you to who God is and what he is doing. And so here's the main point for us from this passage. Here's what James wants to make clear to us. The trials that test you produce the endurance that perfects you. The trials that test you produce the endurance that perfects you. So let's look at this from James chapter 1. Now, if we look back very quickly at the end of verse 1, we, we see James ends his, the, the opening of his letter with greetings. And then from there, he just jumps right into his point. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Brothers and sisters, the, the trials you are experiencing, the pain and difficulty you are facing and feeling, consider it a joy. Consider it a great joy. That financial difficulty you're facing right now, consider it a great joy. That difficulty you're facing at work, consider it a great joy. The health struggles that pain you day in and day out, consider it a great joy. The conflict you're experiencing in your marriage, Consider it a great joy. 
the struggles and trials of parenting, consider it a great joy. No matter your trial, James says various trials, no matter your trial, no matter the pain, no matter the struggle, what he says to you is consider it a great joy. Say what? Like, like, don't you just want to respond? Say, say what, James? Really? Did, did we read you right? A joy? Yeah. A great joy, in fact. How can James say this? Like, James, are you serious? Like, honestly, how can you tell me to consider the pain that I am experiencing to be a great joy? How can you tell me to feel joy in the midst of the things that are the most painful and the most difficult? Well, let's be clear what James is saying and what he's not saying. James says to consider it a joy. Some translations like the ESV say, count it all joy. James isn't primarily talking about an emotional state, but a perspective. He isn't talking about internal feeling, but he's talking about faith. Exercise your faith, your will, to see trial in a particular way. He's calling you to put on joy-covered glasses, so to speak. He wants to adjust the way you look at your trial, the way you see your trial, what you believe about that trial. So how do you tend to view trials? What's the perspective you you tend to have? I recently came across this, this, I don't know if it's a parable or this, this kind of funny little story that I think illustrates this well. So there was a king who had a servant, and the servant would travel with him wherever he would go, and anytime something difficult would happen to the servant, the servant would say, this is good. And the king really was perplexed by this. He, he, he would notice this constantly happen. You know, the, the, the servant would lose a bunch of money. He would say, this is good. The servant would get sick. He'd say, this is good. Any type of hardship that he experienced, he would say, this is good. And so one day, the king and the servant were out hunting, and and the king took his gun, and he fired at a deer, and there was something wrong with the gun, and he ended up blowing his thumb off. And in response, the servant goes, this is good. And the king is like, how could you say that? I just blew my thumb off, dude. And he flew into a rage and threw his servant into prison. A few weeks later, the king is out hunting again. And as he is out hunting, he is captured by a group of cannibals. And as they are preparing to do what cannibals do with people, they notice that the king is missing a thumb. And for these group of cannibals, they did not eat anyone who wasn't completely whole. And so they let him go. And so the king rushes back to see his servants, throws open the door, tells them about what was happening. He's like, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I locked you up. And the servant's like, hey, no worry, this is good. And the king's like, how can you say this is good? I locked you up. He's like, because if I was with you, (laughs) how do you tend to view trials? What perspective do you have when you think about your trials? Do you consider them meaningless suffering? Do you see them as just, hey, this is part of living in a fallen, broken world, and I just sort of have to suck it up and take it? Do you consider them the consequences for your mistakes? Maybe you see them as God punishing you for your sin. Perhaps you see them as an attack from the enemy. 
Listen, how you view your trials, the perspective by which you see your trials will affect how you react and engage. They will affect you spiritually and physically and emotionally. How we view trials says everything about how we will engage them. And so look, as we, we're going to see in the next few verses, what James makes clear is your trial is never meaningless. Yes, we do live in a fallen, broken world, but they're never meaningless. And God never just says, suck it up and take it. And yes, sometimes the trials are the result of our unwise and sinful actions. We can do stupid things. But listen, if you are in Christ, your trials are never a punishment. How do we know this? Because Christ took all of our punishments. As Hebrews 12 makes very clear, it's not punishment, it's correction and discipline. And yes, we do have an enemy. The world hates us. We have an enemy, Satan, and evil spiritual forces that hate us and are trying to wreck and ruin us, and they attack us, and we sometimes face trials that are part of their attack. And so there are often multiple things going on in a trial. But regardless, James says to us, consider, see a kind of joy in what you are going through. And why does James say to consider trials a great joy? Because of what God is up to. As he writes in verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The trials you are going through are testing, testing your faith. And this is a kind of testing, to be clear. It's not a testing sort of like pass or fail kind of test. It's the testing of strengthening. It's the testing that a marathon athlete has to go through testing first, hey, where am I in my level of endurance? And now let me put myself through trial and testing to build up my endurance. Let me go through increasingly more difficult trial runs to build endurance. And this word endurance, it, it, it means to bear up, to hold up, not get crushed by difficult circumstances. Endurance is the ability to keep going not giving up, not giving in when there is great stress and strain. Like to complete an Ironman, to complete a marathon, your body has to hold up under extreme stress and strain if you're going to finish. But in order for there to be endurance, you have to go through a testing, a building up of endurance. You have to be made stronger and stronger the trials that test you, they produce endurance. They are strengthening you so you can hold up and not get crushed by the pain and the difficulties of life. Like This is why James says, consider it a joy, because through them, God is strengthening you. God is up to something good in your life. He is making you stronger. He's training you. He's building you up. Listen, the world wants to wreck you. Your enemy wants to take you out. God wants to make you strong. He wants to make you strong so you can endure. You can stand against the enemy's attacks. You can resist the devil, as James will say in chapter 4. And you can stand strong against the world. God cares deeply about your faith. God cares that you would be strong and you could endure in his sovereign hand, the trials that test you don't crush you. They produce endurance, steadfastness. They strengthen you so you can hold up and keep going. That's why James can say, consider it joy. Is this how you see your trials? 
Do you see in the midst of your trial God strengthening you? God doing something to make you better and stronger? Perhaps not. Perhaps you don't or perhaps you struggle to see this. But consider, if this is true, does it not make sense that James would say, consider it a joy? Like, look, I'm sure those who train for marathons, I'm, I'm sure even Eric, when he's out training for an Ironman, doesn't love it every time they go through testing. Every time they put their body through the pain of building endurance, they don't love that. But when they can view the goal, they can view what is happening, the purpose of it, that I am getting stronger and this is going to help me endure, they can find a kind of joy even in the midst of pain. The trials that test you, they produce endurance. But it doesn't stop there. Like endurance has this wonderful compounding effect. Testing produces endurance, and then James says, let endurance have its full effect. Why? In verse 4, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Look, I, I, I know, you know, joking about how people who run marathons and Ironmans are a bit crazy, but if I'm honest, and that level of endurance, it's admirable. It's so admirable. To be able to put your body through that much strain and stress only to survive, that is impressive. The amount of discipline and commitment that takes, wow, that is commendable. See, endurance, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 4, produces character. James says the same thing. Growing in endurance is growing in maturity. The strength of spiritual endurance is the strength of faith and character. Consider trials a joy. Why? Because through them, God's maturing you. He's maturing you. He's building your character, shaping the beauty of virtue in you. And so consider it, consider your financial difficulties a great joy, for through them, God is maturing your character and trust and dependence. Consider your job trials a great joy, for in them, God is maturing your character to know what it means to work hard for him and not for man. Consider your health struggles and all that pain. Consider it a great joy because in them, God is maturing your character in hope and finding comfort in him. Consider your marriage conflicts a great joy for in them, God is maturing your character in humility and love and forgiveness. Consider your parenting struggles a great joy for in them, God is maturing your character in patience and grace. Consider the trial of battling that besetting sin a great joy, for in it God is maturing your character in honesty and confession and repentance. Listen, friend, whatever the trial, whatever the struggle in the sovereign hand of God, the purpose is not to ruin you, but to mature you. It's not to wreck you, but perfect you. Let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Like when something is, is perfect, it means there's nothing else that needs to be added. There's no deficiency. There's nothing it lacks, nothing, nothing to add to it. So, you know, the, the tomahawk steak at V. Mertz, that's a perfect steak. If you've never had it, highly recommend it. It's a perfect steak. The Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers, and The, and the Dark Knight, those are perfect movies. <laughs> the Count of Monte Cristo is a perfect novel. No deficiency in any of these things. Nothing they lack. You and me, where we, where we stand, where we sit right now, we have deficiencies. We all have them. We lack something in our character. 
There are ways that our character is incomplete. Our faith is weak. We need more maturity. We need stronger faith. And God knows this. God knows this. And he's not indifferent to it. He cares deeply. He's active in our lives to grow us and mature us and build us so that we may be mature and complete. God is up to something great in your life, great in your faith through your trials. And listen, this is going to be a lifelong project. We will not obtain full and complete perfection in this life, but we can certainly grow. Friends, we can certainly grow and mature We can experience a movement towards completeness and perfection in this life. So here's the question for you and me. Do we want maturity? Do we really want maturity? Do we want a strong faith? Do we care about character? Do we long for holiness? Do we see the beauty of virtue and desire that in our lives? And do we long to be rid of sin and immaturity, not because we hate feeling weak or we don't want to look bad, but because we long for holiness and to be like Jesus? Like, is this the longing in our heart? Is this the desire in our hearts? If you long for that kind of character formation, if you long to be mature and complete, lacking nothing, that is wonderful, that is beautiful. But here's what James reminds you that comes through trial, comes through testing, There's no shortcuts. There's no quick way around it. It's trial and testing. The trials that test you produce the endurance that perfects you. And so do you see what God is up to? Do you see that in your trials, he's powerfully working for your good? Friends, listen, this doesn't mean that trials still don't hurt. Trials still hurt still painful. This doesn't mean, what James is saying doesn't mean that there isn't going to be pain and struggle and lots and lots of tears. Consider it a great joy does not mean feel no pain. It does not mean force yourself to feel joy. Listen to me very carefully and clearly. If what you take away from this is I have to force myself into an emotion, you're missing the point of what James is saying. Forcing yourself into an emotion is not the point here. The joy that would potentially come from that, that is a joy that comes from maturity. It's the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of maturity. Don't chase the emotion. Let God do his work of maturity. And if you let God do his work of maturity in you through the trial, joy will come. Joy will come in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the hardship. But that is a fruit of maturity, not an exercise of our will to gin up some sort of interior feeling. Maturity. So friends, this is a, not a call to deny pain and trial, but a call to see past the pain, to see more that is going on, what God is doing in your trial, to trust him and to lean into what he's doing. There can certainly be those moments of joy, but it's the maturity. It's the growth in character. It's the becoming like Jesus. That is what God is up to. The trials that test you produce the endurance that perfects you. Also, James, as James goes on, he, he doesn't assume this isn't going to be a struggle. Right after exhorting us to let endurance have its work so we lack nothing, he writes in verse 5, Now if any of you lacks wisdom... 
Let endurance do its thing so you don't lack anything. But if you do lack something, in particular, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Considering a trial's a great joy, like, look, this isn't easy. Holding that perspective of faith is challenging, especially when you're in the thick of it. So what are we to do? Like, when we struggle with this perspective, when we struggle to see appropriately what God is up to in our trials, what do we do? We ask God for help. We are to ask God for help. Ask him for wisdom. Ask him for the wisdom to be able to see, to consider our trials a great joy. Ask him for the wisdom to see how he is building endurance and maturity in us. Look, we don't do this in our own strength. We have to have the wisdom and the truth of God to be able to have this perspective. And so when you lack this perspective, when you lack the wisdom to see what God is up to in the midst of your trials, ask him. Ask him for wisdom. God, help me see. And if I don't always understand exactly what you're up to, at least help me to see and to know and to believe you're working for my good. You're trying to mature me in a particular way. We also ask for wisdom to know how to act within a particular trial. Because when you're in trial, sometimes you don't know what to do. Sometimes it can be hard to know what to do. Trials can be messy and hard and difficult. And so God says, ask me for wisdom and how to navigate that. And here's the good news for us, friends. Here's what James says. He says, ask. And why do we ask? Because of who God is. Because God gives generously and ungrudgingly. God, uh, James points to the character of God to give you the confidence to ask. And catch this, catch this. The Greek word that is translated generously, like in one sense, it means generous. It means that God is, isn't stingy with wisdom. He gives it in abundance. Ask because he's going to lavish it on you. He's going to give you wisdom in abundance. But there's more to it. There's more to this. This word in the Greek also means sound, singular, not wavering, which means this. God is not only generous with his wisdom, but he has a single mind to give it to you. He has purpose to give it to you, and he does not waver from that purpose. God has set, I will give you wisdom, and nothing's going to change that. God is fixed in his purpose to give you wisdom when you ask. God is committed to giving you wisdom. It's not just something that he's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I should probably give you that. It's like, no, I have purposed, singular of mind to give it. We ask because we know he will do it. And what's more, he gives it ungrudgingly. He, he does not hold it against us that we ask. He's not like, what's your problem? Why are you asking me for wisdom? Why don't you know this already? Ungrudgingly, lovingly, graciously, God is kind to us in our weakness. He gives what we lack when we ask him. He gives what we need so that we would walk in maturity do you need wisdom for that financial difficulty? Ask God because he gives generously and ungrudgingly. Do you need wisdom to navigate the difficulties in your job? Ask God because he gives generously and ungrudgingly. Do you need wisdom to navigate the conflicts in your marriage or the struggles you have in parenting? Ask God because he gives generously and ungrudgingly. Do you need perspective as you navigate the pain and the trial of health problems? Ask God because he gives generously and ungrudgingly. Ask God because God is this good. 
He is this purpose, this determined to give you the wisdom you need to mature you when you ask. Now, at the same time, how we ask matters. As James writes in verses 6 through 8, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now, wait, didn't, didn't, didn't we, James just imply that it's okay to ask because we struggle? Sometimes we don't have the wisdom. Sometimes we struggle to have the perspective. So, so what, what's going on here? Well, again, pay close attention to what James is saying and not saying. He isn't describing someone who struggles. He's describing someone who is disloyal. He's not, he's not describing someone who struggles. He is describing someone disloyal. Look how, how James describes the doubter. Like a surging sea, double-minded and unstable in his ways. The word double-minded there literally means double-souled. It's the picture of somebody facing two opposite directions at the same time and trying to go in both directions at once. It creates this sense of instability a lack of loyalty and commitment to one thing or the other. A person who one minute asks God for wisdom and the next runs to the world for wisdom. A person who one minute is obedient to God and the next decides, I'm going to throw in with the world. Such a person, James says, is like a surging sea. And I love how one commentator sort of dove into this, this image here. He points out that there's a difference between a sea with its normal crest and trowel, the highs and lows. Even in that change, even in that movement of up and down, there's a steadiness to it because there's a steady change. It's sort of following a natural pattern of up and down, highs and lows. But when a sea is storm-tossed, the sea doesn't follow a natural pattern, but the waves are constantly changing from one moment to the next. No steadiness, no pattern. And so look, friends, we go through highs and lows. We go through difficulties. This is understandable and normal. And even in the midst of those highs and lows, we can experience a steadiness that our faith brings, a a, a maturity of faith that anchors us, even when we're up and even when we're down, that keeps our souls from being in chaos. But when we're storm-tossed, when we're changing from moment to moment because our hearts are divided, That's disloyal. That's what James is pointing to, is when you have a divided heart, when you aren't all in with the Lord in the sense that all your hope, all your your faith, you are, Lord, I need you. I know I am a mess, but the world has nothing for me. You are everything, and I am just throwing in all with you. If there's a divided sense of, well, maybe I'll try Jesus. Oh, that isn't working. Maybe I'm going to go over here. Well, that isn't working. Let me go over here. Oh, let's, nope, let's go back over here. If there's this sense of divided loyalty, you are storm-tossed, as James says. You're, you're hedging. And if that's where you are, why would you expect God to give you wisdom? And would you expect to be able to even see it if he gave it to you? James is calling these Christians, don't be disloyal when you ask. Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth when you ask. If you are struggling Go to the Lord wholeheartedly. Don't hedge. And so he is calling us. He is calling us to a wholehearted faith and trust in the Lord. And so 
we have to ask ourselves, is this how we are asking? Are we asking, even in the midst of our struggle, even in the midst of our pain, are we bringing all that we are and putting all of our chips in with the Lord in his wisdom and his power and his grace? Or are we trying a little bit of Jesus over here to see if that works and we'll try a little bit of kind of self-fulfillment and individualism over here? Are, are, are we just playing a game to see what works best for us? Is our hearts given over to loyalty to the Lord? Friend, if you do indeed possess true saving faith, and if your heart is divided, understand that's going to get you nowhere. You're not going to come to a place of wisdom and maturity that gives you perspective. You're going to feel a lot of frustration and angst and failure. Because you know why? Because God loves you too much to leave you there. If you belong to him, he is going to light you up. Maybe he's doing that right now. You feel unsettled and unsteady because God is trying to, to wreck and ruin you in a good way. He, he is trying to pull that, that loyalty to the world that you still, that still clings to you, still hold on to out of your hands so that you would come to him with full faith and trust. He doesn't want you to wallow in disloyalty and half-hearted devotion. And if this is where you are, if this is what the Lord is convicting you, and if this is what you are sort of experiencing in the midst of your trials, then humble yourself. Turn from a divided heart and turn to the wisdom that matures you. But, but if you do not profess faith in Jesus, like I, I wonder what do you do with trials? Like, what do you do with your trials if you don't have faith? Do you see them as meaningless? Do you just kind of see that like, this is just what happens and this is meaningless? Or, or maybe you've adopted that, um, that Nietzschean proverb, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, it's funny how as much as Nietzsche hated Christianity, that he was ripping off James with that statement. <laughs> but there is a world of difference between what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and what James is saying. Because there's a sense in which, hey, that's not a bad approach if, if you sort of see, hey, this doesn't kill me, it's gonna make me stronger, and so I'm gonna lean into the trial to become stronger. Like, like there's, some, there's some wisdom to that. There, there's some good to that because you see it as more than just meaningless. But here's a question I have for you if this is where you are. Why embrace that if there's nothing afterwards? Like, why go through the pain of character building if once you die, that's it? Why not just live it up? Why not just live in the midst of chaos, get as much pleasure as you can, and then die? Like, why even care about virtue? Why even care about character formation if once you're dead, you just pass on? Friend, Jesus offers you something far greater than Nietzsche. He offers you far, something far greater than just emptiness and meaninglessness or convincing yourself there's meaning when there isn't. As, as James writes in verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You see, the beauty and power of endurance is that it is leading somewhere. It is leading somewhere great. It is leading to a crown of life for those who endure. All of the endurance, all the character formation, all the trial, all the pain, it's leading to a crown of life. That's our hope. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And we have this hope not in our own strength, not in our own strength to endure, not in our own fortitude and endurance. 
No, we have this as a gift and a grace of God. Here's what Hebrews 12 tells us, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. It's the same pattern. Jesus saw a joy on the other side. And so he willingly walked through the the trial and the pain of dying on a cross. And he did that because he knew what joy was on the other side. When he died, on the other side of that was resurrection. It was ascension. It was victory. It was accomplishing the will of his father. It was bringing salvation to his people. And friends, the good news of the gospel is because Jesus endured, we endure. It is through Jesus that we endure. Because Jesus endured the cross, we can be forgiven for all the ways we have chased this world's wisdom, all the ways that we have had a bad perspective, all the ways that we've tried to endure on our own and in our own strength, all the ways that we have been disloyal to God. Jesus died for that, paid the penalty for that, so we could be forgiven. And in the resurrection power of Jesus' life, we now walk in that power, and it's by that power we endure It's by that power that God is changing us and maturing us. And it is through that power that we run this marathon of life. We endure this marathon of life with all its hardship, all its pains and trials, being made new and made in the image of Jesus. And so if you have never put your faith in Christ, James calls you to something greater. He calls you to life in Christ because through life in Christ, the trials that test you produce the endurance that perfects you. And so this, even this morning, even this morning, you can walk those trials with a greater hope and new life. But let me say this in conclusion for those of us who put our faith in Jesus. And that crown that we're going to get one day, the glory of that crown, that glory is shining back to right now. The glory of that future is shining back into our present right now. Because the power that is going to perfect us, the love and the grace that is going to put that crown on our head one day is the power and the love and the grace we have right now. That that future reality is the strength and power that we have in our present trial and our present difficulty. The same power on that day is the same power that is working right now. We have hope in our trial. That crown that James points us to is the promise and the hope of the power we have right now in our lives. And so, church, friends, brothers and sisters, consider it all joy when you face various trials. Why? Because the trials that test you produce the endurance that will perfect you. Let's pray.